This is your pal Daffy Duck, and you're watching. You're watching. We're watching. You're watching Fanboy. 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 Fanboy, etc. Fanboy Nation. Dot, I assume Tom. This evening, I have the pleasure of speaking with Lily Metta, and if you know anything about Lebanese people, we always live in crisis mode. And if you know anything about her new film, 86 Melrose Avenue, it's completely crisis-free. Uh, no, I'm kidding. No, this is a very intense, uh, dramatic film that took 28 days to film here in Los Angeles. Lily Metta, how are you? Hi, Robert. I'm doing well. How are you? I cannot complain. Uh, you know, usually when, when a Lebanese person makes a movie, it's either a very light comedy or a very heavy drama. And in this sense, you went into a dramatic tone with this film, uh, dealing, the, the common initialism they use is PTSD, short for post-traumatic stress disorder. I like to use the phrase from World War One because it makes it sound heavier, heavier than the initialism that we use now, which is shell shock. And you have an ex-Marine named Travis, uh, Didi, I can, I can never pronounce Dede Didi's last name. Thank, thank you. Uh, you know, who plays Travis the Marine that's going through this and goes into this art gallery in Beverly Hills or in, in the Hollywood area and mm -hmm. takes people hostage. And now they have to relive their own traumatic disorders. Uh, what was the inspiration in writing this? Because you're not only the writer, you're the director and the producer on top of this. Right. Well, I wanted to tell a story, uh, Robert, that had people from different walks of life who intersect during a fateful night. And it's more of an action slash thriller drama. Uh, and it addresses several themes like the antipathy of the other, the vagaries of the human condition, and it also deals with the insidious, insidiousness of mental illness, such as post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it is a character-driven narrative. So there's a lot of themes that, were interest, that I was interested in, especially uh, human connection, interaction between people, especially people from different culture and social backgrounds. And, and you do a wonderful job with this uh... You know, the, the film has, uh, Anastasia, uh, Antonia in it, uh, Gregory Zarian, who I kept calling Jeffrey when I was talking to Anastasia, mostly out of jealousy because he still has perfect hair. He is amazing as an actor and as a human being. He's a wonderful person to know and to work with. Uh, you know, he had, he has a role. He plays an Israeli character in the film. Uh, uh you know, and uh, we know what's going gone on over in Israel, a neighboring country to Lebanon. Langston uh, uh, Fishburne, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's son. Uh, you know, I was trying to place him. I was like, God, this guy looks so familiar. And then when I saw the credits and realized, oh, it's Lawrence's son, it made perfect sense because he looks just like his father. Very much, yes, he does. You know? uh, what What was the inspiration in writing this film? I know you grew up in Lebanon and the era that you grew up in Lebanon was not a very peaceful and calm time, uh, especially for when we were young. Right. You know, um, it's, a, it's a film that deals with a lot of topics, of course, that uh, we relate to not only the war and the ugliness of it all, but also the, um, um, the importance of human connection, regardless of what part of the world you're coming from and what is your social class. And uh, I wanted, I'm very, I'm a person that very, is very interested in relationships and interaction. And at the same time, I wanted to explore the disconnection we have today in our fast paced and high tech world. 
uh, I feel that as a society, we are becoming very disconnected and desensitized. Um, the other major theme for me is I just didn't want to talk about the war itself, but the, the invisible scar of the wars themselves, which are PTSD and uh, mental illness. You know, people who live uh, in an area that has war, whether being a veteran uh, or somebody born during the war, a civilian, a fighter, you know, people come back with the invisible scars that you cannot see like a physical wound. And yet they're very deep, they're very real, and they're very uh, debilitating if they are not addressed. And uh, this is something I wanted to mention. But mainly also I wanted to talk about gun violence. You know, I don't know if you know that every day in the United States, more than 50 people are killed from gun violence. And that's a problem. You know, uh, gun violence is a huge problem. And I feel that people don't know how to talk to one another anymore. They talk at one another. And it's very easy to, for something to get out of hands where uh, guns are being used and then it leads to the to the worst. You know, there, there's a lot of talking at each other, as you mentioned, and it's become very easy to do so behind the keyboard. The interaction, you know, interpersonal interaction is not there anymore. Uh, how do we recapture that in an era where it's so easy for me to sit behind the keyboard and type out a nasty message to someone that I disagreed with in 240 characters? Right. I feel that you know, the more high tech this world has become, the more disconnected we are and a little um, disconnected and very uh, indifferent, I would say. We don't talk. I even see that I'm even at restaurants. I see sometimes young young kids at a date and everybody's on his cell phone. So we have a communication problem. And it's especially true when we notice that we are from different place or from different culture or social class. People have a hard time. Um, embrace difference in some ways. Uh, we are scared of differences. I think we are frightened of the other. And uh, I wanted in this movie to precisely talk about those differences that make us so unique and interesting. Um, we do rely a lot on text message. It's very impersonal, I think. And it's you're less invested in the other. To answer your question, people tend to just respond in a very impersonal way and in very disconnected ways. So text message today have be, have taken over. People don't call one another to talk. They just send you paragraphs and paragraphs of text messages. I try to avoid it as much as possible, unless I'm just confirming a day, an appointment or something. I just feel it's very disconnected. And at times it's very, um, it's very, I don't want to say rude, but it's something that is so uninteresting and so uh, disconnected that it's, uh, it gets to a, to, a, to a certain level where you are not um, vested into the other person. So for me, it's just, if it's a very cold message, it's just to confirm an appointment or something, but I try to always have a face-to-face with a person. You know, it's, it's a different thing. It's a body language. It's looking at the person. It's being engaged. It's seeing their energy. It's seeing the whole thing. I mean, that's why it's so important to have human relationships. And we are becoming very, very far from all this. The more high tech we have become, the more disconnected we be we're we being. Right. And the pandemic hasn't helped any of that over here in the United States. Yeah, the pandemic has actually made us a little bit more crazy because we're left with ourselves for prolonged time and loneliness and isolation. You know, in my opinion, for a long time it's very unhealthy. Mm-hmm. 
have to well, have an I, I'm more on the introverted side in my personal life. So, Yane, let's put it like this. If you left, if you left me at home and you saw me on the couch and you went on vacation for three weeks, I promise you when you come home, I'll probably be still sitting in the same place, but further along in the book where I, uh, than where I started. But at least you have, you interact with like you read, you go for a walk, you do things. So you all, we all need a little bit of time for ourselves, not only with it, with ourselves, but just to be outside to explore new things, to be with nature, to read a book, you know, to be engaged. You know, with, with the engagement and seeing what Lebanon was and Lebanon plays a factor in this story, Afghanistan, you know, it's, it's a very Middle Eastern story in a very American setting. And excuse me, not necessarily from an immigrant aspect, but from multiple aspects, from a soldier, from, mm -hmm. uh, from neighboring countries that don't get along with each other, from neighboring religions in the same country that, that don't necessarily get along with each other. And to interact as we see in the United States now, how we can live together that we couldn't somewhere else. That's a huge factor in this that people don't fully understand that you're bringing light to as well. You know, being in Los Angeles, it's a very cosmopolitan city and you can meet anyone from any part of the world. And especially, you know, people from part of the world where you would never expect that you can put character A and character B together and then suddenly here they are together in, in one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. Um, and regardless, although it's a city where you can meet anyone, there is still in every much less in big cities like LA, but a lot of places in the US, there is still a sense of, you know, somebody is different. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to, you know, people are very wary or very suspicious of the other, especially if the other is different. And and that happens a lot these days, especially now, especially after this, this past summer, um, the, the divide has become greater and it doesn't seem that we're all Americans anymore. It's your sub American, you know, Lebanese American, Greek American, Turkish American, Armenian American, Israeli American, et cetera, et cetera, going all the way through, you know, uh, Sudanese American, whatever. Um, and that first part takes away from the second part. Whereas my friend, uh, he had a, his grandfather was born in a Japanese internment camp, but on his, on his identification card, it said American of Japanese ancestry. And that's something his grandfather was actually proud of instead of being considered Japanese American. They had put American first, even though he was born in that camp. It still meant something to be American first. Um, do you think that twist enough is just in the wording is enough to divide us even further? Well, I think most Americans are not, you know, they're somewhere, somewhere, you know, Irish American, Italian American. Everybody, you can ask most people you meet, they'll tell you, oh, I'm Scottish, German, French on my mom's side, Russian, Australia, uh, Austrian or something on my dad's side, for instance. So uh, what is America? America is, is all these new cultures, people who came from everywhere, immigrated to the States, and that's what the U.S. is today. So everybody comes with his background. I think it's something very enriching, you know, to have all these people from different backgrounds, from different cultures, from different countries, you know, make up the society of the United States. And I think that's the, the beauty of it. You know, it's the place where everybody wants to come and where at the end of the day, everybody comes and, and adapts. And I think it's very important to adapt. That's one of the main key to be, to be fully American is to, it's good to come with your own culture and everything, bring the positive, 
but it's very important also to adapt to embrace the United States. If you do not embrace it, you cannot adapt. Uh, go to any ethnic family's house for Thanksgiving and you'll see the turkey in the middle and some of the more traditional American side dishes. And then, as we had mentioned, both you and I are Lebanese. So then there'll be the hummus and the baba ghanoush and then dolma <laughs> and whatever else all around it, you know, mixing the American identity of what American Thanksgiving is. And then with our own food that, that we want to bring to the table as well. Let's admit our own food is really good and people love the Lebanese food. By the way, I've noticed in Los Angeles, all my friends... As soon as I say Lebanese food, they already know. Oh, yeah, I love tabbouleh. I love hummus. I love this. Oh, I love the kebab, the garlic chicken. I mean, people love the Lebanese food here, which I find amazing. It's great. I mean, we have great food. We have to be proud of. So this is something that is good to bring in with you, your food, you know, the... But it's also important to adapt. I think that's the problem today. There is a rise of nationalism in the States and in Europe. And people try to look at Others as different, especially if they are, they have newly come to the States, they still have an accent or they don't have a good command of English. And they're from countries that are considered anti-American, so to speak, because their government is anti-American. So there's a rise of nationalism today in the States and in Europe. And that's a little scary because it's very hard. There's, it's very hard to accept a different person with this mentality, with this belief. Yeah, it is. And the way I make light of it is I, I joke with people. I said, racism doesn't work because if someone makes some food that's that delicious from their own country and brought it with them, how can they be that bad of a person if this whatever dish is so delicious? Right. It's yeah. very important to look at things that bring us together versus things that are bringing us apart. It's important to look at everybody's different. And that's what makes us so interesting and intriguing. It's not something to be scared of. It's something to embrace. We are all unique in our own ways. Our food is different. Our language is different. Our way of life is different. Yeah. And this movie shows that as well. But you also pick an art gallery and you specifically pick an address of 86 Melrose Avenue. Why this address? Did you live there and now it was converted to something else? Was it an actual museum? Like what was so significant with picking this address? Well, actually... um in LA, the big art galleries are on Melrose and on Robertson, if you drive around. And I was driving one day and I saw all these galleries. And I'm like, wow, that would be interesting. And I already had the idea of my film brewing in my head. And I would go to art shows. And it was very interesting at art gallery, at art openings. This is where you meet people from anywhere. It can be the neighbor across the street. It can be a critic. It can be a patron. It can be also an artist who is coming just to check out other artists' work. So I would meet people from every corner and some were just coming because there's, uh, there's wine and little uh, appetizers. Other would come just to have a look, you know, before going out. And these art galleries open usually from three to 8 PM or four to 10 PM. And anybody can come in. There's no cover charge. So just people walk in and just look at the art and check it out and leave. And I thought that would be the best setup for my story. Like where you can meet anybody. We're just coming to watch. And that's how the idea came to light. But I did not shoot it on Melrose, no. Right. <laughs> but but it's funny that you picked a specific address on Melrose. Like... I checked that it wasn't an existent address before, and uh, it wasn't existent, so I created it, yeah. You know, by, my luck, if I had picked an address like that, it would have ended up being the post office or something. <laughs> you know, uh, I checked the address before, 
and it did not exist. And I'm like, perfect, because there's avenue and there's place. There is Melrose Avenue and there's Melrose Place. So I checked on both. Yeah. And when when you were forming the story in your head, like, what was the thought process in in bringing this story to life before even setting it in an art gallery? Was it just that you wanted a cosmopolitan international story? Uh, you know, you've seen people go through shell shock and, and live it and still hold on to it and haven't necessarily dealt with it. Like, how did that all sort of begin to tie together? Well, actually, uh, how the movie came together is uh, it was. Um... The, the the idea started brewing in my head in 2015. It was a conflation of ideas that came together. First of all, I grew up during the Lebanese War, uh, which lasted about 17 years. And they call it civil war, but it was a regional war. I'll just call it the Lebanese War. And uh, I do have post-traumatic stress disorder, like a lot of people, in a sense that any loud bang will make me startle. You know, um, you become more hypervigilant to noises, you know, like a loud bang reminds us of the bombs. It's just the way the brain becomes uh, more hypervigilant. And um, I've spoken with a lot of people. PTSD is not necessarily the war. You can have it from a car accident, from a hostage situation, from a robbery in a metro, from a very bad breakup, uh, from witnessing a violent altercation between people. So PTSD, from being hit by a car, for instance. So PTSD is something that, affects people differently, and it also, people automatically say the war. War is one of the major factors, but not only war. So I wanted to explore that idea. And also, I knew a lot of people, veterans, who fought in Iraq and Afghanistan and came back. And, you know, thank you for the service, but then there were there was never any follow-through, and these people suffered uh, nervous breakdowns, mental breakdown, PTSD, uh, suicide ideation, and many, many other stuff. And I knew of a friend's cousin who committed suicide after he came from two tower of duties here in Iraq. And it was because he wanted to speak about it, but they had this idea of suck it up, you know, take it in, you're a man, you're strong, you're an ex-Marine. You know, it's just that get over it, you're back, now it's over. No, it's not over. So I feel that our veterans are used and disposed of. They need to be um, they need to be a proper follow-through after they come from serving overseas, especially that they come with very invisible, invisible wounds, which are the trauma they witnessed. Uh, so that was one major point, the PTSD, and not only PTSD, mental illness, which is very prevalent. It's still a stigma today, you know, to talk about it, um, depression or being suicidal. We see one of the characters so I wanted to show that everybody has lived in his life, all of us, a moment that was traumatic, that affected us in any way, any any traumatic moment that affects us in a certain way. And it's the past that shapes a lot the present and how we react to any given situation today. So this is what I wanted to talk about. Of course, gun violence, as I said, 40,000 Americans die every year by guns and uh, just look what happened, you know, past couple of weeks in Atlanta and Boulder. So I wanted to not only mention, Robert, the hidden horrors of mental illness and PTSD. I wanted to show issues with our society today that is very disconnected. And uh, again, we have a lack of communication. There is a, a rise of nationalism. There is uh, the hideousness of the mental illness and the traumatic experience that we live. 
and how they shape the way we we live our present and the way we react to any given situation, especially a situation that brings back those traumatic memories. So that is something I wanted to put in on screen. And I brought all these characters and uh, how they interacted with one another. And when they are confronted to their looming mortality, how when everything is at stake during a one and a half hour of real time, how their past and their present collide. And I don't want to reveal more about the movie. It's, uh, you know, when people will see it, will understand. Of course, uh, they have to wait till April 20th, though. So yes, which know. is not that far. It's in a couple of weeks, less than a couple of weeks. We're we're waiting. You know, everyone <laughs> needs to wait, so we can't give away too much of the story. But right. uh, you know, you mentioned the rise of nationalism and Lebanon. Uh, you said a, a, a regional war. I called Lebanon the chessboard. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, everyone, Syria came in, the Palestinians came in, the Israelis came in, the Americans showed up in 1982. So, you know, Lebanon was really the chessboard of the region where everyone Even was. Even the pawns that they moved, mm-hmm. you know, it, uh, it's unfortunate and it's still the truth today. Look at the Iranian uh, in, involvement in Lebanon today. It's very obvious. It's very sad. We're paralyzed by these big uh, countries and by big interests. And we're a small country that is a very diverse country and we're stuck because there is, um, we have neighbors that are, uh, they have interest in Lebanon, greedy neighbors. We started with the Syrians. We started with the Palestinian issue, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and now Iranian, you know, influence. I mean, when can they finally let us live in peace? Right. It all spilled over at one point. Uh, but yeah. it, it got to the point for people that don't realize that, you know, Lily and I joked a little bit in the pre-interview that, uh, you know, because the Orthodox are on the old calendar, the Catholics are on the, the Julian calendar. So I asked her, are you Catholic or are you Orthodox? So I know when to wish you a happy Easter. You know, but it, it's gotten, it went to that point at one point. Are you Catholic? Are you Orthodox? Are you, you know, part of ex-militia? Are you Sunni? Are you Shia? Are you Durzi? Are you, you know, Jewish? Uh, Dr. Gad Saad lives in, um, Toronto now. He was a Lebanese Jew and his family escaped during the middle of the Lebanese Civil War. Uh, and they went to Canada. So there were, you know, there's all these different, not only sects of religions, but, you know, multiple religions themselves. Uh, is an Israeli gentleman I met that, that found out I was Lebanese and Lebanese Christian, uh, lives on the border of Lebanon and Israel just so he can look into Lebanon because he grew up in Lebanon. And it was the closest he can be to Lebanon is the southern Lebanese border without going back to so back born home. In Lebanon. So yeah, he was a, he was a Lebanese he was a Lebanese Jew that moved to Israel uh, when the civil war started. And this elderly gentleman, he was in his uh, late seventies at the time, and he was telling me how he lives on the border and he sits on his veranda every morning just to have coffee to look into Lebanon. That's very sad. All the Lebanese that suffered from the war, being Jewish Lebanese, Christian Lebanese, Muslim Lebanese, because. We paid a heavy price for our regional interest and they used that religion strengths that we have, which was coexistent and turn it into something we, where we were all embattled in, in, in it and everybody took side. It's very sad. It's extremely sad. But with your film, you even reflect on that a little bit because you show other Middle Eastern countries in there and people that come from all over the world and they're there and they're different struggles. Yet we all have struggles and you display it in this film in only 90 minutes, which is an unbelievable task. You know, Lebanon and Israel are in a state of war. We're enemy countries, and uh, both we are not allowed to have um, 
a relationship with an Israeli, I think, and vice versa. I think vice versa. I'm not sure. But as a Lebanese national, we're not allowed. So can you imagine being in a place where suddenly something happens and you discover that the other is an Israeli, you know, but the other was somebody who was against the war, who refused to serve in the Israeli military and left his country. He is against the language of war and violence. And here he is. It's another human being just like you, somebody who's looking for the same basic thing we all look like, we all look for, pardon me, love, success, being able to, you know, to create, to to work, to fall in love, little things that we all expect. So it's just the enemy. The other one is the enemy at the border. And yet that enemy at the border is just somebody just like me and you. And and it plays out in the movie, and you have uh, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, and you have it beautifully done. That's uh, Gregory Zarian. Uh, his father was mayor of Glendale, uh, you know. And we, I have a lot of Armenian friends, and we joke that they're all from Glendale. And here he is, an Armenian from Glendale. So it plays into that as well, you know, lighthearted humor uh, with our friends. And this is something that we're excited to see within the film. Yeah, and talking about, you know, uh, being a mutt, a melting pot in the state, as we mentioned before, um, Gregory has German ancestry on his mother's side and Armenian on his father's side. On my set, there were over 13 nationalities talking about differences, talking about also parody. 50% of the cast, uh, of the crew was female and the other 50 male, just so you know, because it's a very, male-dominated business. And with all the problem we hear today about parity and lack of representation of minorities. So it was interesting. We had 13 nationalities on set. And that's beautiful. And But the thing is, is that it's, it fits the narrative of the story. It didn't have to be hammered home that this one is Israeli, this one's Lebanese, this one went to Afghanistan, this is a black guy, this is a Mexican person, this is so-and-so. It flowed into the story and everyone had their own situation that was relatable, whether you were of that ethnicity or not. And they all come full arc, full circle at the end, which is amazing. The reason why I mentioned 13 nationalities on set, most of them were born here, or at least 70%. But what was interesting, they were not hired because they were from this country or that country. They were hired because of their ability and their talents. They were amazing as cast and crew, just to let you know that it's so funny when we put our differences aside, you realize, my God, I'm working with this super talented person. Turns out he's from this country or from that origin or from this religion or from that religion. It's so funny when we stop looking, when we start looking beyond the color, the religion, the origin, the accent, the belief, the political side, we have so many things in common. We share so many things and it's so ridiculous to limit our involvement with anyone based on who they are, where they're from, what is their religion. Yeah. And, and that's what you do in the movie because we can't give away too much detail, but we can dance around the subject and, and use, uh, right. mo- you know, modern events in the world. But if we look at World War One, for example, we'll go back to that. Uh, you know, I had family that survived the genocide in that because my father is a Syrian and, uh, you know, everything that, that went along with that. But then look at the European war. They had the Christmas truce. You know, there was a film called Jouy Noël, Merry Christmas in French, about the Christmas Eve truce that almost ended the war. The soldiers put down the guns. The, the Scottish came with the bagpipes and then the priests from, from both nations, from all, from all the nations came and they had, you know, a, a Latin Catholic mass 
in the middle of the battlefield and they celebrated Christmas and then December 26th, the day after, they went back to war because the generals told them so because the French is the enemy, the English is the enemy, the Germans the enemy, the so-and-so is the enemy. So, you know, time to pick up arms and go back to it. It's very sad, but it's the, yeah, it is what happened. During the war in Lebanon, they said also when there was the green zone and, you know, opposing parties or opposing militias that were fighting one another, when there was a truce, sometimes I would sit and play backgammon or, you know, uh, play cards. And then they each, at the end of the curfew, they go back each to their post and they came back to being enemies and holding their rifles or their machine guns. Very sad. Seeing that in person and, you know, not referencing a hundred years ago, which how it happened in World War One, but now in your own life and trying to understand how, you know, Tony and Saeed are sitting there and playing cards and they're laughing and they're drinking tea and they're having, you know, baklava and whatever else. And then all of a sudden, okay, 10 o'clock, time to go back to the post. Like, how is it that for for this hour and a half, you're friends and laughing and talking and enjoying each other's company, and then all of a sudden, click, you're my enemy again? Because in all wars, people are brainwashed. They use the excuse of religion to manipulate the masses, and suddenly the other one is the enemy. And at the end of the day, people are people. They just want to They have the same aspiration, the same dreams, the same goals. If you put them together, they don't, it's just, I really believe governments are, you know, greedy people who are in power, who are using that religion as an excuse or ethnic ethnicities or any such thing. At the end of the day, people are people. I grew up when I was a child. I had friends in Lebanon. I didn't even know if they were Jewish or Muslim. I didn't care. I never questioned the last name or the first name or anything. Even if they have a name, David, or or a name that was uh Abraham, that could be Muslim, Jewish, or Christian. I never even questioned. We were kids. That, that innocence was beautiful. And even in our teenage years, uh, during the war, we still didn't care. You know, our friendship was was so precious. We were very loyal to one another. And I think that later on, it's whatever interest, strategic interest in the Middle East, greed, power, money, hatred, whatever, that fueled that war that is disgusting. But I think, I really believe people are not bad people. It's just whoever is using them and brainwashing them and trying to take all the masses and for whatever interest to do this. War is disgusting and religion is always the easiest excuse. And how much does that scare you being an immigrant to the United States and seeing the rise of nationalism here and what it did to your origin and where you come from because you know Lebanon initially was Phoenicia and you know 2500 plus years uh, of civilization and you know the first written alphabet that wasn't stamped in cuneiform an actual you know uh, letter system uh, came from Lebanon the first law school in the world was in Beirut yeah um I don't, I'm not scared of nationalism myself personally. I do not feel I'm targeted. I don't see it in Los Angeles. I think you see it in other cities, in suburbs, and in other cities, in other states. Um, but I don't think nationalism is only a scary thing in the states. Go see in Europe what's happening. Um, I personally don't feel it, especially in LA. You don't feel it, you don't see it, and uh, it's not so prevalent here. 
But I think for me, anytime you ostracize a certain group because of their origin, their color, their religion, their beliefs, um, that's a problem. And I think we need to know, learn to communicate with one another. It's again, it's a problem of communication. And uh, I think if we communicate, we'll understand better one another. And when we understand better, we accept more. I think the the suspiciousness and the anger and the hatred to the other who is different comes from the fact of ignorance. We don't know who they are. We don't want to know. And sometimes when we do want to know, we get shut down with, with answers of, well, you should have known. Well, how do you know if you don't ask? Right. And I think it's very important to to have an open mind. You know, we're all different. We all come from somewhere else. You know, whether from most people in, in California don't know about some small city in the Midwest, for instance. So it's very important to be open-minded, to be also sensitive to others, to differences, because we're all different. And I think that's what makes us so unique in this world. You know, and the, like you said, a small city in the U.S., Anastasia Antonia, who's one of the stars of the film, is from Michigan City, Indiana. I didn't right. even know there was a Michigan City in Indiana. Neither did I. And she no. told me. And I'm like, wow. So see, we learn every day more and more. And I think knowledge is uh, is precious. It's very important to learn, to be open, to be open-minded, to learn, to to be willing to learn. Otherwise, you will not accept differences if you're not interested in knowing, in discovering. With, with that being said, and you had 28 days to film this movie, Anastasia told me, I need to ask you this question. How were you able to film that police scene in the middle of Los Angeles, especially with such a tight budget? Well, uh, I had also a few pickup days without the cast, which is all the pursuit scenes. I can't tell you a lot of things about how we did it, but it was all shot real time. Everything was shot, even the military training. Everything was shot. And uh, I can tell you that the um, hostage, hostage negotiator scene was shot in downtown Los Angeles. She was crazy shooting there. I remember we, were, we had permits to shoot between uh, 9 p.m. and I think 3 a.m. before, you know, people start coming to downtown at 5 a.m. And the moment we started setting up with police cars and uh, actors in police uniform, nobody showed up. The moment we started putting the big projectors and the big lightings, people started coming. Hundreds of people came like, oh, my God, you're filming. Because nobody wanted to be where the police were was, but the moment they realized it wasn't real police, they're filming. Here we go. Everybody was there. Um, closing downtown is crazy. You know, even if you're closing a few streets. So some of it, the pursuit scene was shot in Lincoln Heights. The hostage negotiator scene with the road closures was in downtown Los Angeles. And, um, it's very, you know, filming in LA is extremely costly. I can tell you that. And it's very discouraging for independent films because it's very, very, very expensive to get permits, to close anything. Then you have so many permits, you have so many requirements and they make it hard for us. Very hard. I understand why a lot of people shoot out of Los Angeles and out of California. It's so expensive here. And if you had shot in Arizona, for example, it probably would have saved you uh, some uh, major dollars. Yeah, but then again, you have to fly your crew because I had an amazing director of photography. 
Steve Berkovich, who's fabulous. You know, you have a great crew. I mean, you can hire another crew there, but I mean, your DP, you don't want to ever change your DP. You're working with the look, the style, and you know, it's your partner in crime. It's, it's not easy, but the pickup scenes were shot without the cast. Uh, anything that had SWAT uh, team outside, police car, everything, except the scene with Date. Uh, when we shot, there was only the main star, Date Elza, when we shot in Lincoln Heights, Travis. So you know it is uh, when we shot in Lincoln Heights, and he was he was real. We had police cars, and um, which was actors, of course, and some people did not know we were filming. So it was very real when the traffic was stopped completely. Lily, I have to ask, you're the executive producer, the director and the writer on on this film. When you're making the movie, how married to the written word on the page are you? And are you willing to, to work around certain things that just didn't fit either with the budget or the way the story was unfolding in the picture and the willingness to change with how everything begins to to mesh, you know, like... Say some, say you have your final draft here, but then in the third draft of the script, something worked better. Would you go back to an earlier draft and pull it in and make it work now for the way the story looks? So I try because it's hard to direct, write and produce your film. It's a very hard thing. On the next projects, I'm going to have also partnering producers just because it's very, it's very hard to wear all the hats, so to speak. So I initially start writing the script as a screenwriter. And of course, you never have final draft. You keep going back and forth on. And then when I'm close to pre-production, I look at it as a director as well. Things that are out of budget, like, oh my God, I'm going to need, I wanted to shoot a few scenes in drone, with drones, but I knew it was very hard in the city. You can't shoot with a drone with all the cable, electric cable and uh, electric poles. So you start cutting things out of the budget just because you know, I have this much to work with. It's going to be impossible. So you work around the director as well. So here you go, you're wearing the director's cap. But also I do readings with the actors before and I, it's nothing is set in stone. If I say a line that the actor feels more comfortable saying in a different way, absolutely. I've, I'm not rigid about it all. Absolutely not. Uh, so a lot of little dialogues here and there change on set. Gregory, for instance, or Anastasia would come tell me, you know, Lily, I want to say it this way. Absolutely. Because for me, as Avi, or for me, as Nadia, as that character, it would feel better if I said it this way. What do you think? Absolutely, let's do it this way. So, you know, nothing is set in stone. And even with the script, it keeps changing little lines here and there, even when you're on set filming. A script is never finished script. That's beautiful. And that's honest, too. Uh, I, I ask every Middle Eastern person this, and everybody from the continent of Asia, our continent, people forget that we're, we're Asian as well. Uh, we have five major degrees that we're allowed to have uh, in uh, in our families. It's some form of science, doctor, pharmacist, you know, scientist, whatever, lawyer, uh, some type of engineer, um, business degree, which they, they aren't too excited about it. And the fifth one I, I jokingly refer to as the shame of the family. Black sheep. Yes. You know, well, Arts. you know, right. The artist, the shame of the family, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're a filmmaker. You came from Lebanon to the United States. You have an MFA in film from Loyola Marymount. Is your brother the doctor and that's how you got away with it? Or are you just the only girl and you're the favorite? No, we are three. I'm the youngest. Uh, there's my sister, my brother, and there's myself. Uh, my dad 
is a surgeon now retired. Uh, none of us may went to med school. Um, I was always, I, I used to write poetry and short stories when I was a kid. So I was always inclined to the arts. I loved films. I used to be, even during the war, it was my escapade. I called the big screen, the small TV would be stuck in the basement watching when there were, when I, whenever the electricity was still on and watching movies, what well, it sucked me in. I could run away from my reality and suddenly be taken by this family and become a member of that family on screen. It was a very important survival mode for me. So TV were my escapades because all the films in the shelter were on the TV. So it was very important for me to... Um, I was in love with films. There was no way I could become a doctor or an attorney. I didn't feel true to myself. And I didn't want to do something I didn't love. And I think it's important for anyone, follow your heart, follow your dreams, and act on it. It's one thing to say, oh, I dream of becoming an astronaut or a filmmaker or a doctor. Well, work hard on getting there. But it's important to persevere. It's important to follow your dreams. And I I didn't see myself as a doctor or an attorney or an engineer. So to answer your question, I was the black sheep. And absolutely. And I'm proud of it because I followed my heart. See, I always have to ask that question because everyone always asks me, like, your family's from the Middle East, how they let you become a journalist? You know, nobody becomes a, even in movies that take place in the Middle East, everyone is always scared for the journalist. Like, you're gonna go missing, you're gonna go missing. Mm -hmm. My parents were not excited. I can (laughs) tell you that for a fact. Uh, but, uh, it was ultimately my choice. They were not excited that you're gonna do what? Cinema? Well, there's no work in cinema. How are you going to survive? You know, that's the first question that, or the first comment they'll make, which is true in a lot of ways. It's a business that is very tough to break into. Even if you're in L.A., people think you're in L.A. That's it, you're a celebrity. Actually, when you are in L.A., it gets tougher and tougher. It's the city of the film industry, and it's the hardest city to make it in that film industry. It's very hard. And, uh yeah, my parents were not excited about it, but... um I didn't want to give up. I mean, I didn't love anything else. This is what I wanted to do. Right. Your escape became your salvation. It's always been my salvation. You know, uh, I felt it was something I needed. I needed to be true to myself, to express myself. And the only way I could do that is through the medium of film, telling stories. You know, Lee, uh, 86 Melrose Avenue comes out on April 20th. It's a heavy story. We're coming out of this pandemic now. We're in the orange tier, whatever that means. Um, you know, what's one reason someone's going to sit there and go, I lived a heavy year. Why do I need to watch a heavy movie? Well, it's an action thriller drama, so it's not a drama only. Um, it's a very compelling film. It's very timely. And... Uh, I think we can, it's a very relatable movie. We all will find a piece of ourselves in that film. So I'm not going to give it out. I'm just going to watch it and you'll understand why. It's a very relatable movie. It's very compelling. And it's something that, uh, a story that needs to be told. It's about us, citizens of the same world. Beautiful. Lily Meta, uh, uh, 86 Melrose Avenue comes out on VOD April, uh, April 20th. Please check it out. Where can we find you on social media if we want to connect with you? I am on, I'm terrible with social media, to be honest with you. I am on Facebook, Lily Mata, and on Instagram, Mata Lily, <laughs> and on LinkedIn. Um, but uh, mainly, mostly I'm uh, on Facebook because I'm horrible with social media. I mean, you, you really have to work on it and invest your time in it, and I don't have time. But uh, I am there. It's very easy to find me. 
Perfect. And then the next movie that you're working on will have Tony Shahoub and Nick Tarabai in it. So uh, that way we have two more Lebanese people in the film. Who are they? Tony Who? Shalhoub. Uh, Tony. I love Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. And then Nick uh, Tarabai. He's, uh, well, if you know them, you'll be the, you'll do the introduction. I, I know Nick, so I, I interviewed Nick at, at the start of the pandemic. Uh, let, let's see if we can make that happen. All righty. Yeah. Okay. All Deal. Right. Thank you so much for your Thank time. You so Again, Mel- 86 Melrose Avenue comes out April 20th. Final word is yours, Lily. Please watch it April 20th. Thank you.